One of my favorite things to do on Saturday mornings as a child growing up was to get up early. And it was not because I was interested in college football. It was not because I was interested in college game day. As a matter of fact, I didn't even like football at that age. Uh, My dad was a Cowboys fan. And they were actually worse then than they are now. So I did not like football growing up. My favorite thing to do on Saturday morning was to get up because mom and dad liked to sleep in. And I would get a very, very large bowl of the greatest cereal, um, Lucky Charms. And if you want to debate that, I can debate it after we're done. Uh, And then I would watch cartoons. So good. One of my favorite cartoons growing up was The Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. And just so if any of you think that his name is Wiley, it's not Wiley. It's Wile E. Coyote. So just side note there for you. The old coyote spent countless episodes trying to capture, trying to kill, trying to eat the Roadrunner. He was never able to dine on his favorite um, character there because there was one big problem. The writer and creator of the cartoon, a man by the name of Chuck Jones, had a list of rules that applied to every single episode of The Roadrunner. A few of them included these. The Roadrunner cannot harm the coyote. Pretty crazy to think about that. The only thing that he could do was annoy him with his signature phrase of, meep, meep, right? You're welcome for that. No outside force could harm the coyote. The only thing that could harm the coyote was his own devices or the misuse of the acne, acne, whatever, acne uh, bombs and things that he had at his disposal. Uh, The coyote was always more humiliated than he was harmed. So you see all of the times where he has his face blown up and he's just humiliated for the situation that he's in. I find the similarities between Haman and a wily coyote all too familiar. And since Mordecai only refused to bow down to, uh, to Haman... He posed absolutely no physical threat to him. Kind of crazy when you think of that similarity. So another similarity would have been that there was absolutely no outside force that caused Haman more harm than himself. Actually, the only thing that Mordecai, I mean, that, yeah, Mordecai ever did to Haman, because he wasn't bowing down to him, it was like that annoying beep beep, right? He was just so annoying to him. But his own anger, his own desire to have something that he could not have drove him completely insane. Haman was the most responsible party for his actions. And we're going to see that he's the most responsible person for his consequences as we look at uh, this study tonight. Um, And just as the coyote could never eliminate the roadrunner. We're also going to see where God could never allow Haman to rid the world of his people. And as uh, Ian Duguid says it like this, it was possible to be certain all along that Haman would never ultimately triumph. 
Not because we have confidence in a greater cunning of Esther, but because we have confidence in God's covenant promise to Abraham and his seed. God's plan, God's purpose was still 100% at play even in this uh, time that we're going to look at tonight. One of the things that will get us in trouble uh, as Christ followers is when we also forget about God's promises that he made. And when we lean on our own power, when we lean on our own understanding rather than his. Haman was about to come face to face with God's promises and face to face with his own sin and ultimately face to face with his own consequences for his pride, which leads us to our big idea. We should be willing to confront sin and seek justice rather than remain in sin and face the consequences. So just a very quick, small recap. Uh, Chapter 6 and chapter 7 cover a 24-hour period of time. First, we had Esther throwing a feast for Mordecai and, um, excuse me, for Haman and the king. And we're going to see that uh, Haman will leave this feast and he will see Mordecai not bowing down, not fearing him. And he's like, okay, this guy has to go. So Haman is going to come up with a plan. He's going to create some gallows so that he can have uh, Mordecai hung on the gallows. The king that night decides that he, or he doesn't decide. God decides that he's not going to sleep. He hears a story about Mordecai. He comes up with a plan to honor Mordecai. In walks Haman to ask for Mordecai's death. And um, instead of getting to kill the person he hated most, he has to throw a parade for him. Um, And then he goes home uh, like a dog with his tail between his legs, and his wife gives him a warning. If Mordecai is who he says he is, if you've done this against him and his God and his people, surely you will fall before them. And so we have a warning And then some people show up and say, all right, Haman, it's time for feast number two. And that's where we are tonight. Chapter seven, starting in verse one. Let's get going. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, the second feast. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. So, this moment of truth has finally arrived. Um, We thought that this was going to happen in the previous chapter. But now, for real, for real, 
the truth is going to be revealed. And so Esther is going to attempt to save her people. She's going to reveal her hidden identity of being a Jew to the king. And so first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Esther's request. God never calls us um, to be courageous in an end to itself. God is not asking us to walk around with our chest puffed up um, in a belief that we can do something on our own. But God is asking us to take courage in him to serve his purposes while we're here on this earth. Which leads us to Esther's request displayed great courage. You know, we talked about last week that God is the true hero of the book of Esther. It's not Esther. It's not Mordecai. It's God. It's God that gave the king the sleepless night that led to everything kind of unfolding the way that it has. And so even though God is the hero, it doesn't take away from the role that Esther is going to play in the deliverance of her people. The feast takes place here in Esther chapter 7. This will be the second time that Esther, in essence, will risk her life to save her people. The first was going into the presence of the king to even um, talk to the king about what was going on with her people. And he showed her favor. And again, we're going to see that the king is going to show her favor as well. So she's going to reveal who she is. This is, would risk her life for the second time. And this request came with great boldness. Secondly, the, Esther's request took some great wisdom. It's not just what we say that's important. It's how we say it, it that's important as well. I want you to think about Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address. A few years ago, Isaiah dressed up as Abraham Lincoln and gave a speech at his school. And it was pretty remarkable that... Um, he actually memorized about half of the Gettysburg Address as a first grader. 272 words. It's about three minutes long if you read it. But he memorized it four score and seven years ago. You know, and you, can, you know it, right? Most of you could probably say a good chunk of it, but not maybe all of it. Some of the most quoted words in history, Abraham Lincoln, what he said. Because he said it in such a way that we remember. You think about FDR, December 7th, 1941. He says this, we will never forget what happened today. Is that what he said? That's not how it went, right? December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy, right? We remember it because it's the manner in which he says it. And so... The manner in which we say something matters. And so Esther is going to be very cunning in her words and what she's going to say. Esther is never going to take for granted the favor of the king. And she's never going to be expected it to be given to her as well. She's going to be very careful with her words. She doesn't want the king to think that she is blaming him so she's going to start with the pleasantries, just like she did in chapter 4. If it pleases the king, if I have found favor with the king, she's going to repeat the very words that he just said to her. This would be very pleasing to the king. This is very smart on her part. And this phrase that she's going to, uh, what she's going to, she's going to move on to what she desired. 
Okay? And she's going to use the very words of the edict that is signed by Haman. She's going to use the words destruction, death, and extermination. Now, here's the funny part about this. This is going to make zero sense to the king because he's actually going to have to stop and ask her, who would do such a thing? What does this mean? Now, the edict was given, the stamp of approval by the king. The king gives his signet ring to Haman, says, do with it as you wish. You're in control. So the fact that it was signed by the king's ring, that it was stamped, it has his stamp of approval, means that, yes, he was to blame for some of this. So Esther is going to continue, being very careful of the words that she uses. She does not want to blame the king, even though he was to blame. Esther knew that Haman was the real enemy of God's people. The truth is, we tend to listen a little bit better when we think the blame is on someone else. My kids are that way all day long. If they don't think they're in trouble, they're like, oh, Bubba's in trouble, I'm going to listen. Sister's in trouble, let me listen. If they think they're in trouble, they're running, right? It reminds me of a time in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when the prophet Nathan comes to King David. And he starts telling him this story about something that's happened. And David's getting hot. He's mad. He's upset. He doesn't want to put up with this. And he's, he's going to get straight to the point. He's going to say, this guy deserves to die. Something has to be done. And then, of course, Nathan, oh, it's you. Look in the mirror. In Duguid says it like this. Esther's intricate plan was a necessary part of the process of bringing Haman to justice. A plan that required a combination of subtlety, boldness, and strength to carry it through. So this time to speak up was now. The time to say something was now. And the king was listening. She had his attention. And now Esther is going to call out Haman. You know, confrontation is never easy. Standing up for what is right is never easy. Especially when someone that we're standing up against has threatened harm to us or humiliation to us. You know, I'm very thankful that we have people around the world who are willing to take a stand for those who are not able to take a stand. Um, I know Chris and Lisa Harrington and Nourishing the Nations, they get a lot of airtime around Emmanuel, obviously. Um, but it's a prime example of taking a stand for those who don't have a voice. Someone who won't, wouldn't have a meal unless they provided through the pastors, through Nourishing the Nations, for this to happen. And Chris, I'm sorry I stole this post from you today. He actually said this on his post. I will fight every day for the children in our ministry in Kenya. He's going to take a stand for someone who would not have a voice otherwise. And it's a very difficult thing to do. Esther had zero clue how, what would happen when she brought this up to the king. Would he take her side? Would he take Haman's side? Which leads us to the king's response. King Ahasuerus' response. One of the most common ways that this king responds to everything that happens around him is by asking the advice of other people. It's gotten him in trouble before. You remember in chapter 1 with Vashti, Queen Vashti, he banishes the queen. We're going to see in chapter 2 that he regrets that decision that he had. Um, the very edict 
that is signed now, that this thing that has shown up that he has to deal with, this is an issue only because he decided to give control to someone that he trusted. So he's very upset. He's very, uh, he doesn't really have a clue of what's going on in this moment. And we're going to see that the king is still going to be easily influenced by other people. You know, one of the reasons why God gave us apostles and teachers and prophets and evangelists and uh, pastors is so that they would equip the saints, so that they would be prepared for ministry, so that they could grow in maturity. Paul says that when this takes place, we know, may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carry about by every wind of doctrine, but human, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're to avoid those types of things. So the king is going to be easily influenced by other people. The God and the, you know, Paul says this shouldn't be that way. But because the king is going to be so easily manipulated in that way, he's going to lack discernment. He's really just going to seek the easy way out. He doesn't really care about the details. He just cares that this is, looks bad on me and how do I get rid of it? And so this is going to lead to the king being caught off guard, which is going to unfold by the hand of his number two man. You know, being betrayed by those we trust the most hurts the most. Being betrayed by those we trust the most hurts the most. And before Esther's um, revealing of who this edict came from, he trusted Haman. He gave him his signet ring. He was number two in control. He really didn't question what he was doing in the kingdom. So then the king is surprised by Haman's betrayal. There was one very thought-provoking, and I, I enjoyed this theory, right, into the king's confusion about this edict that was given. And it was, this was by Brian Gregory, and I found this very uh, intriguing. He contends that because of the Hebrew word for destroy, it's a homophone for the word enslave. What's a homophone? It's like the word second, Okay. Second can mean I am second in the race, or second can mean there are 60 seconds in a minute. They're spelled exactly the same, but they have two completely different meanings. It's like the word lead or lead, right? It could be a medal, or you could be in first behind, you know, in front of second, you could be in the lead, right? And, that, and so two words spelled completely the same, two completely different meanings. And that's what this word in this edict for destroy would mean. It's, a, it's the exact same word that could be used for the word enslave. So the king thought, possibly, that they were to be enslaved, not killed. So this would have caught him off guard, totally off guard. Gregory says this, Haman solicited the king's permission to kill the Jews, but did so with an ambiguous word such that when he followed the request with payment of money, the king would naturally, but mistakenly, think that Haman was requesting merely to enslave a group of people. So again, he had been duped, he had been tricked, and he doesn't like it. He's really not going to lie. We know that this king flies off the handle, he does crazy things, 
and he's just been betrayed by his most trusted advisor. This probably is not going to end too well. Let's keep reading because we're going to look at Haman's ruin. Verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from his wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where he had been drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left his mouth, the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So Haman, in his ruin, he's going to be very surprised by his consequences. The king leaves. There's some speculation as to why he left. Some people think he's angry and just needed to gather his thoughts. Um, That's really not the king's style. That's not how he's operated in the past. Um, I agree with Ian in that he, uh, I think that the king was concerned about his reputation that was on the line. Losing face with his people. If you think about it, this edict was signed with his ring. His stamp of approval is on this edict. How could he punish his number two in command for something that he agreed to? This was a very difficult situation for the king. And I think that's why he left. And he's trying to figure out, how am I going to get out of this? Until he re-enters the room and Haman makes it very easy for him to make a decision. Haman had fallen down before the queen. Or some uh, even say that he had fallen on the queen to beg for his life from the queen. And here's your first irony. Haman had fallen down before her, fulfilling the prediction that his wife made to him not even 24 hours prior, probably that very same day that she said, if you're going to fall before them. And here we see this coming to fruition. What an irony. Will you even assault my queen in my presence, in my own house? Which brings us to number two irony. Haman wanted to kill a Jew for not falling down before him. And ultimately, he will be executed for falling down before a Jew. What a mighty God we serve. And then we're going to see Haman's plan backfired. And perhaps the, big, the biggest irony of this story, Haman is going to be executed on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Now, I have a few pictures uh, for you to look at. Uh, one is what we would normally think of when we think hang him on the gallows, a hangman's noose. That's what we normally would think of. It was more than likely what you see on the right. It was a large stick that you would be impaled on. And it would be held up in the air for all to withhold your punishment for what you had done. And so, 
Either way, either way, Haman was on display for all to see. The number two man to the king is going to be on display for all to see. And in a book of many ironies, in a book of it just so happened moments, uh, and I don't want to miss this, Haman ends up pleading for mercy when he would offer zero. Um, Haman was requesting help from Esther in a moment that there's no evidence that he was sorry for what had transpired. He was sorry that he was in trouble, but he was not sorry for what he had done. And so there's a big difference there. Regretting getting caught is much different than repenting of sin. And so Haman is off to the gallows. And as far as the king is concerned, uh, problem solved, game over, what's for dinner? And so, as we know, uh, in Esther's eyes, and as we're going to continue to talk about the next couple of weeks, the story is far from over. Um, We'll continue with that. But what do we need to take away from this uh, Esther chapter 7? A few things I want to take away from this passage uh, this evening. Number one, we should risk everything for the gospel. Esther 6, last week we talked about very clearly God can do all of these things on his own. He does not need us to accomplish his will and his plan. But chapters 5 and chapter 7 are evidence that he chooses not to. He chooses to use his people. He chooses chooses to place us where we are for such a time as this. And we should risk everything for the gospel. Dowden says it like this. Not a single risk of sin is worth what sin costs, but responding to and sharing the gospel are worth risking our all. Do we have gospel goals in our life? Do we have goals to or plans to share the gospel with someone? We have a job to do while we're here on this earth. Yes, we all have jobs to go to, But we have a job to do. Go make disciples. That's our main job. And God commands it for us. And I hope and pray that we risk much for the spread of the gospel. And I hope that we are courageous to take a stand and to share the gospel. Um, It's the most important thing that we do while we're here on this earth. Number two, we should confront evil rather than cooperating with it. Esther could have remained silent, but this problem would not have gone away. Sin that is usually not confronted usually escalates. Not, it doesn't just go away. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul shares concerns about the spread um, of sin. He says even a little leaven will spread throughout the entire loaf. That's exactly into the whole, entire batch. You know, Are you currently ignoring sin uh, in someone else's life? Or harder yet, are you ignoring sin in your own life? You know, it's very difficult to be able to look at someone else's sin and be like, man, y'all need to do something about that. But what about when you look in the mirror? What about those things that you know are going on in your life, but you have grown comfortable with and you just allow to take place? That's a very dangerous place to be. We should want to confront evil rather than cooperating with it. So it's very difficult. It's very uncomfortable to confront sin. It's very uncomfortable to even confront things that are uh, 
comfortable to us. Um, we also avoid so much calling out someone else on their sin. If we see someone struggling with something, it's very hard. You know, it's not my business. I should just leave it be. The truth is God wants us to confront evil. And I pray that we have a boldness to do that. I just want to say use discernment as you confront sin in, in someone else's life and be very careful to make sure that um, you're not hypocritical in that. Make sure you've dealt with you before you try to do that in someone else's life. So confront evil rather than cooperating with it. Number three, we should live a life that is above reproach. Hiding sin, okay, as we just talked about confronting it. Hiding sin can be very exhausting. You know, it's, it's, it's more exhausting than watching election results, I promise you that. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, mentally, David tells us in Psalm 32, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up uh, as by the heat of the summer. Someday we are all going to stand before God and who we really are will be exposed. The author of Ecclesiastes warns that God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Here's the truth. Haman would have never have fallen down before the queen in the presence of the king. There's no way that if the king had been there, he would have acted in that manner. Here's the other big truth in that statement. We need to always remember that our king is in the room. God is always present. And I pray that our lives, that we live in such a way that it brings him honor and him glory. Verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Out of all the things, you know, I've said every week, this points to Jesus, this points to God. This is number one. This is the thing that I think points to God, points to Jesus, points to the gospel more than anything else. Um, John 4, 10 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. At the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself. He paid the penalty for our sin. He lived a life that we could not. He died the death that we deserved. He paid the penalty that we could not. He became our substitute. And much like the king, uh, how the king, how the anger of King Ahasuerus abated when Haman was hung in the gallows, the same way that God's wrath was satisfied when Jesus was impaled on the tree. God's wrath was satisfied. The good news is worth risking your life for. The good news is worth living your life for. So I, I pray that we would all live worthy of that calling that he's called us to. So let's pray.